So um, welcome to IGC and ODI's uh, public side event at the World Bank IMF annual meetings, Navigating Fragility, the new multilateral agenda. Uh, I'm Abdi Ali. Uh, I am the head of the State Fragility Initiative at the IGC, uh, former uh, executive director at the Central Bank of Somalia, uh, also a national economic advisor and member of the National Economic Council in Somalia. Uh, before we begin, uh, let me start with some uh, housekeeping. Uh, we would like to encourage a robust exchange of ideas between our wonderful audience and invited speakers. For those here in person today, we, we welcome you to actively contribute to the discussions. Uh, we invite our uh, online audience uh, to share the reflections in the chat box beneath the live stream. Uh, the discussions uh, are structured into main segments. Uh, during the first segment, we will explore the global significance of fragility. The second part, we look at these issues in the context of reforming the multilateral development banking system. Unfortunately, Sarah Pantuliano, CEO of ODI, has a conflicting commitment, but she will be joining us for the second session and will be uh, delivering the concluding remarks. Our focus today is recognizing fragility, conflict and violence as a global challenge, and the importance of developing effective strategies to support these countries. While we acknowledge the contested nature of uh, the, the term fragility, our objective is to leverage the ongoing multilateral development bank reform process to address the complex web of challenges that is fragility, conflict, and violence. What we are trying to do is build a common understanding of the ways in which mitigating fragility represents a global public good. Without further ado, let me, uh, uh, moving on to our distinguished speakers who will give some initial thought. Our, our first speaker is Ellen Johnson uh, Sareleaf, former president of Liberia and co-chair of the IGC Council on State Fragility, who has pre-recorded an important message for us, as unfortunately she couldn't be uh, here physically. Honorable delegates, more and more of the world's population are living in fragile states. According to records of the World Bank, some 800 million people live in countries affected by fragility, conflict, and violence. By 2030, an estimated 46% of the world's poor will live in areas characterized as fragile or conflict-affected. State fragility drives some of the biggest problems in our world today. Extreme poverty, mass migration, terrorism, trafficking, and more. Failure to address the challenges and risks that are conflict-affected and fragile settings face has critical implications both domestically and internationally. At the national level, failure to intervene effectively will perpetrate ongoing humanitarian crisis and might trigger new ones. For instance, 
Conflict among warring factions could intensify, poverty could soar, and refugee crisis could worsen. At the international level, as fragility worsens and expands, it will carry global ripple effects exemplified by rise in international terrorism, extremism, and conflict. Intensification of migratory flows and refugee crisis, disruption of trade routes, etc. The multilateral development banking system must be a vital tool in this. They must come together and explore innovative ways to leverage institutions to respond to fragility, conflict, and violence more effectively. There is no other way to say this. There is no denying the fact. And there is no question that if we want to transition our nations out of fragility, if we want to ensure that our governments prioritize areas such as education, health care, and conflict resolution, if we want to positively impact the millions of people who live in abject poverty, we can no longer accept a culture of tokenism when it comes to the inclusion of women in governance structure of leadership. As we look ahead, we must place fragility at the forefront of our development agenda on equal standing with the other intractable challenges of our time. Any reform and scale-up of development finance must have fragility as a central focus. Let us draw inspiration from the resilience of the people of Marrakech to unite our efforts pool our resources, and channel our expertise towards building a more resilient and stable world. Together, we can overcome one of the central challenges of our time and pave the way for a brighter future for all. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ellen. Uh, now turning to our distinguished speaker in the room, Dr. Donald Kabruka, former president of the uh, African Development Bank, former minister of finance and planning, uh, Rwanda, as well as co-chair of the IGC Council on State Fragility. They begin by saying, former this, former this, former the other. <laughs> I sometimes feel I have ceased to exist. <laughs> anyway, thank you, nonetheless. Uh, you know, we're at a moment of reforms in this institution. But uh, I've been attending World Bank meetings that I met for 27 years. I've seen five bank presidents, five MDs of the IMF. And that at the time of a major crisis, we have seen many of them, there is a call for reform. Uh, the big one was uh, during the global financial crisis, you recall, reform the institution. During the Arab Spring, reform the institutions. During COVID, reform the institutions. So the reason I'm saying this to you is that uh, these things are difficult because shareholder interests are not aligned. So we have to make sure that we make proposals that are practical, that speak to issues which can be addressed. Now, on the issue of fragility, I claim firm just for three reasons. I co-chaired indeed with Madam President of Liberia 
the Oxford LEC panel on fragility. With the Prime Minister of the UK, David Cameron, and we spent months working on this. So the recommendation, those documents are there. I recommend them to all of you. Well, a big seminar here at CDG, and uh, everything was explained. I also co-chaired, ah, here's another co-chair, co-chair of something. Yeah. I co-chaired the International UN Panel on Internally Displaced Persons. Talk of fragility, you can't have more than that. So these are not refugees. These are people who are displaced inside their own countries. And so when we discuss issues of refugees or migrants, these people are forgotten. There's no international convention on it, all right? But yet, whether it is Syria, whether it is the Philippines, whether it is Colombia, whether it is Nigeria, whether it is other parts of the Sahara, the 70 million people uh, who are internally displaced are really cause for concern. The third claim to fame is that I now also a member of the International High Level Panel on Security and Development in the Sahel uh, with the former president of Niger. And we have been at it for several months, several months, you know, the link in security development. If you want to understand why fragility has been at the center of this reform, with all the other great things which we want to do, you just have to look at the swath of Africa from Mauritania all the way to Somalia. You talk about over probably 150 million people. Now, people are talking about Sub Saharan Africa, North Africa. So if you come in the World Bank or IMF, when they talk about Africa, they mean Sub-Saharan Africa. The North Africa, like where we are, is seen as part of the Middle East. I think it's a huge mistake. A huge mistake. Having worked on the Sahel, I no longer believe in this artifact. Uh, because what is happening in the Sahel cannot be divorced from what happened in Libya, even what happened in Algeria some years back. And up to now, those two countries are interrelated. Where is Chad's? Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, Niger, Mali. So one of the things I've been urging this institution to rethink how they look at Africa. And I think it is now so important, not simply in terms of allocation of resources, but in addressing things like we're discussing now. Now, I know now in the reforms, there's a big emphasis on global public goods, as it should. Okay, I think we have now come closer to understanding that it's not poverty against the global public goods. It is both sides of the coin. You fail in one, you fail in the other. So they go together. But there's one now which must be absolutely understood by our shareholders. It is that fragility has to be part of that population. If it is not, I suspect that it will come back to haunt us. And here's why. So in the regions of the Sahel, where I've been working, the cause of the problems are many, they're too complex. But there you have got a crucible of the meeting between climate change, loss of biodiversity, diversity, desertification, the real agenda. You have security issues, you have demographic issues, all rolled in one. So you simply can't say you're going to go to the Sahel to address the global public good called climate change. You can't. But these things are interrelated. 
So it is important that we let our shareholders know that fragility is extremely important to be part of the reform. And the reason I'm saying this, I've been given three minutes, so I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I keep calling me former, so this one. Uh, when I first came to the African Development Bank, because of my background, I decided to set up a department of fragility. It was the first time in the name DB it has been done. Uh, yeah, Hela was there with me. It was extremely difficult to convince shareholders that we have to allocate a bit of ADF, IDA equivalent money to fragile states. Why? Because the allocation principle in MDBs is performance-based. The better you do, the more resources you get. So fragile, them at the time, performance-based, zero. So they got very little. But I succeeded to at least get us a small percentage so we can deal with situation in fragile states without worrying about the deal. But shareholders were skeptical. They feared about free riding, uh, what that would give as a signal, and so on. All things which understood. But later, all of us understood that unless we deal with that one, all right, the neighborhood effects later on the millions of people trapped in those uh, countries will come back to haunt us, and it has in many ways. So I think it is important to emphasize it. Look at these documents and the reform proposals. Yes, fragility is mentioned, but I wish it is actually also at the center of the conversation. Because as I say, whether it is in other parts of the Middle East, like Yemen, whether it is Haiti, whether it is the Sahel, how are we going to address global public goods when we, without addressing fragility? I also want to add that um, uh, I'm going to put this to you. A, a census was recently done in my country, and I think this reflects the situation in Sub-Saharan Africa as a whole. Again, North Africa the same. 78% of the people in my country are under 35 years old. 78% are under 35. Now, of those 78%, 35% of them are under 15. Just think through what that means in terms of uh, what they have to do for jobs, right? For education, for healthcare, and think what would happen if we fail to provide them with opportunities. There will be many groups of people there ready to offer them all kinds of uh, aspirations. And the consequence has huge global ramifications. So I want us to think through uh, these issues carefully as we discuss these reforms. People like Alexia, who are the voice in the, in the boards of the institutions, it's important they understand this. 70% under 35. 35% of whom under 15. Just think through those numbers. And this is true for many countries in Africa, both North and South. So it means we have a choice of having a model of development, even MDBs, which address this issue, not simply waiting for the famous demographic dividend, address it now. Because the consequences, no matter seen 20, 25 years down the road. So these are the messages that I want to leave with you. I think. 
Madam President mentioned uh, what we did uh, this commission. We can also look at the reports on the uh, IDPs, 70 million of them. Uh, as for the Halimah on Sahel, we're still at work. Recent events, of course, in Mali, Burkina, and Niger has complicated our work, but in a way has made it even more urgent, extremely urgent. And I hope that when it comes out, it may be influenced some of the work you do. So my message, reform. I hope we do the reform. But it's not simply about global public goods. It's about global public goods, one side of the coin, over one other side of the coin. But in both, fragility is completely integrated. I tell you that I think that uh, for the region of Africa at least, I from Mauritania to the Sahel, to Eastern Sahel, Somalia. Unless we address this issue, going all the way to Yemen, but Yemen, across the Red Sea, unless we address this, I think uh, there'll be a huge problem coming to hunt us in the future. So thank you for inviting me. By the way, before I go, this issue of former, one time I went to Mozambique. And uh, so the person who was speaking, and he kept mentioning a word called the uh, Antigua president, Antigua president. So those of you who speak Portuguese, Antigua president means the former president. But for me, who is my bad, I thought he made an antique president, which means I should be in the museum piece. Thank you, nonetheless. Without further ado, uh, let me uh, introduce our first session, The Global Significance of Fragility, featuring uh, myself, but also Lucas Rutinga, who is a Senior Advisor for Climate and Security uh, um, at uh, Adelphi, and our moderator, Frank uh, uh, Biscuit, who is the Deputy Director of the IMF. Uh, Frank. This is very cozy, right? So very difficult challenge is to speak after two presidents, no former. Uh, so, and also when you especially agree with each of them and you really respect what they have done. And I say that because I saw the report, I read the report with Professor Collier, by the way, and that helped to inform the IMF engagement in fragile and complicated states bringing humility to the point that no single organization can do it by yourself. Key message. Bring also the point about, what is it, these questions about tackling poverty on one hand and tackling fragility and conflict. President made it very clear that, in fact, it's 43% today of the extreme poor are living in countries impacted by fragile conflict. And 60% by 2030, it's even worse. So what does it mean? That the two agenda are mutually reinforcing. When you support countries that are impacted by fragile and conflict, you do two things. First, you focus on the extreme poor, which is quite important for many entities. But at the same time, because there is something which is called spillover, conflict and trouble across the border, they don't need passport, you actually do a global public good. And I think the whole point about recognizing that tackling poverty on one hand but also focusing on those countries where poverty is concentrated is really, in fact, the same point. It's mutually reinforcing. 
Very important because very often we hear about the distinction one agenda versus the others. This is actually one area which is very complex and we need to make it very clear. So why is it important today? I'm supposed for this first session to be actually raising the importance of this agenda. I mean, numbers speak. You know, the IMF just here to provide some data. Martina will be borrowing some numbers from the World Bank, who is also uh, uh, providing many data. Last year, 200,000 conflict deaths were reported, which is the highest in 30 years. Now, point which is quite important is that the length of the conflict has actually doubled. And it's about the average length, as it's calculated, is about 30 years. And you will see why it's important. So the nature of conflict, the, in the, the fact that it's really uh, requires a long-term engagement is actually has some implication. The second point we heard about forcibly displaced people. UNHCR mentioned last year, 108 million people, IDPs and refugees. Two other statistics that really show the importance of this agenda. If you look at food insecurity, guess what? Whether you look at FAO, WFP reports, 15 out of the 22 early warning hunger hotspots for 2023 are actually countries impacted by fresh gene conflict. And then you will tell me, what about climate change? And I think like President mentioned before, it's very clear. Those countries are also among the ones that are the most impacted by climate change. So, and I think President Banga this morning, I know if you heard that the, during the opening press, made a very eloquent statement about not looking at those issues in silence. Uh, so here, basically, you have a situation where those countries are actually having the highest number of poor in the world, and it's where poverty will be increasing moving forward with the do-nothing uh, scenario. Secondly, it's where food insecurity is the most important. It's where you really have the highest number of possibly displaced people, and it's where actually climate change is hitting the most. So I don't think I need to say more about the importance of this agenda, trying to provide some, some numbers. The second point, you could say, okay, fine. So those numbers, you could have provided them four or five years ago. What is new? Well, there are a few things. There is something called COVID. There is something else called Russian war in Ukraine. And that guess what? Those countries have been impacted by compound shocks. Let me give you some statistics so that we are very clear about what does it mean exactly. In terms of inflation, if you look at those countries that are impacted by fragility and conflict, they are about an inflation rate of 15.5%. If you look at the per capita income for those countries, again, impacted by fragility and conflict, they will not, per capita income of 2019 will only be matched in 2024. So basically, it's half decade lost. And I could talk about the debt. I could talk with so many statistics showing that those countries have been the most impacted by the different crises, whether it's in Ukraine, or whether it's about the debt, or whether it's about, uh, obviously, the, the COVID pandemics. So I would just stop here, because uh, I would like to turn now to Lucas to focus on one element, which I mentioned, which is this link between security and climate change. But I would like just to have one statement, which is basically to say that the spillover of fragility and conflict are a threat to global peace, conflict cross-border, also a threat to macroeconomic stability, and that's why at the fund we are stepping up big time to support those countries impacted by fresh gene conflict, more financing, more capacity development, and more staff on the ground to better support the authorities on the implementation of reform on a daily basis. But at the same time, spillover fragility and conflict are a threat for poverty reduction. And that's why today this conference is so important to look at it as a global public, but try to see 
how we can support this agenda as a global public good. Lucas, you are a top expert on this nexus between one point that was raised before by our two presidents, which is really a nexus between security on one hand and uh, climate change. So please tell us more about that. Great. Um, um, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, I'm Lucas. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, we at Adelphi have been working on the links between climate change, environmental change, conflict and fragility for the past 20 years. And I want to share two insights. And I think one um, that you made and was made before, there is what we can see is the, um, the contexts that are most affected by fragility and conflict are also those that are the most vulnerable to climate change. Actually, if you look at the statistics, um, 80% of um, the most fragile states in the world so that are in the most fragile quarter um, are also in the most fragile quarter if you look at vulnerability indexes um, for climate change. But we have, we don't only see a convergence of risk. So we not only see that food insecurity, climate change and conflict are converging, but they're also increasingly interacting um, and they're exacerbating each other. Um, and they're creating communities and countries that are increasingly trapped in climate fragility traps. Um, and um, these challenges that we're seeing, these um, climate security challenges, are also not um, risks that we just see in the future. We already see them out playing um, across the world. Um, so what we can see today, for example, in many parts of Latin America or also in Africa, is that climate change is exacerbating conflicts around land and water. Um, we can also see, for example, in Mali, Somalia, and Mozambique, that um, climate change is exacerbating livelihood insecurity, and that is on the one hand pushing people to move. Um, so it's increasing migration movements, especially um, from rural areas and cities. Um, and what we can see really in the receiving areas, of course, increasing pressures, also increasing security risks. We can also see that the same livelihood insecurity is make, making people more vulnerable to the recruitment into armed and terrorist groups um, and um, causing um, a lot of security risks like that. And then if you look at the other side of the world, if you look into the Pacific, um, we um, get warnings from local communities that are saying that the increasing pressure of climate change and other economic and social um, sort of pressures are really overwhelming um, even those very peaceful and stable societies and that they can see how social cohesion and relationships are framed and moving them towards more insecurity. Um, and what we can also see that it's especially, of course, vulnerable and marginalized groups um, such as women that are suffering from that. So what we also see is for example, that gender-based violence is emerging as a really big climate security risk. Um, so what we see is climate security risks are increasing. And of course, with climate change accelerating at an unseen pace, those challenges will increase in the future. So that's the first point. The second point is more on the response side. So what do we do about this? Um, and we also heard that these links between climate change, fragility, and conflict are not simple, right? They're systemic risks, they're complex, they're compound risks. Um, so this means in terms of responses, we have to reflect the multidimensionality of these risks in our responses. And what that means in practice is that we need integrated responses. So we need to really start linking climate change adaptation, peace building, and development on the ground. And if we do that right, 
there is definitely a lot of um, potential for synergies and co-benefits, for example, by using inclusive and joint natural resource management to not only improve livelihoods, um, to improve resilience of local communities, but also to bring conflicting groups together over those resources. Um, and there's three things that we can do to kind of foster these kind of in integrated approaches. Um, one, of course, we need to break silos and we need to improve coordination, collaboration between different actors and between different sectors. Um, and there are some really good examples. Um, for example, EGAT in East Africa, they have established the first regional climate security mechanism that brings together the member states and the UN system to address these climate security issues in a coherent manner. Um, we also, of course, need to work on financing, um, especially from this perspective, we need to increase climate change adaptation financing for fragile contexts, where we can also see that just that the most fragile contexts and most vulnerable contexts only get a, a very small amount of climate change adaptation financing. And we have to make sure that this financing, of course, is on the one hand conflict sensitive, but also in the best case pro-peace so that it supports peace building and stabilization processes. And that means that funding needs to go to integrated projects, not just your standard adaptation project. Um, and in order to do that, um, we also need specialized capacities, um, specialized climate security capacities. And there's another example, for example, across the UN system, um, peace, um, peacekeeping operations are now increasingly getting environment and climate security advisors. And they're really making a big difference in mainstreaming climate security across the UN system um, and fostering action on the ground in fragile states. And with that, I would like to hand, hand it back over to you. Thank you. So that's the time where the moderator is not so sure what he's supposed to do. So Ken, uh, is it? Should we just shift right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Perfect. Do you have another mic? Yes. Sir. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you, Frank, and sorry for interrupting. Um, I'm sure that you will have a lot of uh, statistics. Um, I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to speak about statistics, but I will share perspective from a group of G7+, plus, which is an intergovernmental organization of 20 conflict-affected countries. I have basically four points, uh, very briefly. Uh, first, looking at the current geopolitical and geoeconomic fragmentation, uh, we have seen that the Hobbesian nature of the cooperation will not or will even take us away from our shared goal of addressing fragility and conflict or global crisis. So what we need to do is, we need to introduce solidarity, human solidarity in our contacts. It's not only a theory, while the World Bank President, the IMF Managing Director, and increasingly some donors are talking about this, we, the G7 Plus, have lived this concept of solidarity. If you look at our composition of the groups, we are from across all the regions. Uh, so I hope that, that we change that narrative and we introduce more on, you know, the human solidarity rather than merely the national interest. Second, the fragile conflict of countries have been feeling the brunt of all this global crisis. And I think this was mentioned by both presidents and we, the citizens, have been living that. On the other hand, the response to those crises do not match 
the scale of the, the cost that these countries are paying for the challenges that they are least responsible for. Example, the climate financing, one eightieth of per capita of the financing on climate goes to the fragile and conflict affected countries. The third, we are glad and see that, you know, almost all the MDBs have fragility um, strategy. And we are encouraged to see the IMF um, strategy on fragile states, and it features scaling up more presence in the countries and more tailored approach. And I hope that it will enhance a better understanding of that. At the same time, we also see increasing resources towards resilience. We, encourage, we are encouraged to see that coming from the United States, from other donors. However, at the global level, there is no global mechanisms where all these MDBs, all these actors and the fund and these countries sit together and discuss what needs to be done. And in this regard, we are again very happy and proud of the partnership with the IMF that we are organizing or co-convening a meeting on the 15th of October, where we will have the president of the World Bank, the IMF managing director, the GSOM plus ministers, together with all the other donors and the GSOM plus members and non-GSOM plus countries to discuss how can we address that. And finally, for us, the citizens of the fragile countries, multilateralism is the last resort. We still believe in the value of multilateralism. However, we spoke about, we heard on um, the reforms of the multilateralism. We need to be more inclusive. We need to be more responsive to the voice of those countries which are in the last mile of the development. And we need to understand their situation and their context better. In other way, if you want to reform the multilateral institutions and policies, we need to respect their perspective. We need to include them, not only symbolically, but in actual conversation. Thank you so much. Right, Elisa, let me turn to you. You heard about the advice of not breaking silo, much more financing, but also the whole point about tailoring approach and making sure that it's done in a very inclusive manner. At the end of the day, countries are in the leadership, and we should be also very careful to see the different actors, peace, security, development, humanitarian, to work with that uh, statement in mind. Uh, any view about looking at tragedy, conflict, and violence as a global project plan, and what could be done about it? Thank you, Frank. Um, well, we already explained that uh, fragile states face uh, multitudes of challenges, and these are interrelated, as, as Lucas uh, uh, mentioned as well. Um, but uh, there's a perspective that I want to emphasize, and that is actually within fragile states themselves, there are pockets of relative excellence. And this is something we don't know, right? There are, there are pockets of re relative excellence. Our focus, therefore, should be how do we sustain and strengthen these pockets of relative excellence? Now, these pockets I talk about, it's based on my experience in Somalia, is that they are based on uh, pockets of excellence that have to do with basically basically coping strategies of resilience around, say, markets, or it could be institutions, it could be uh, communities, it could be people. There are elements that are working. That's the point I'm trying to make. Now, Therefore, uh, then the question becomes, okay, how do we how do we do this? We want to strengthen these pockets that are working internally within those countries, because this is the only way they can escape fragility, right? Realistically, we cannot really reinvent the whole the whole wheel, right? So that's the point. Uh, well, the point I'm making is before I answer Frank's point, is that actually 
my argument is that MDPs are well placed uh, to deploy a wide range of tools to uh, support these, what I call pivotal moments, right? I can give you the example of Somalia. Um, ten, year, of, 10 years ago, Somalia, where, where we were and where, where we are today, unrecognizable. We are just finalizing a, a HIPIC program, IMF program successfully. Complex, uh, comprehensive um, series of, of benchmarks that are very difficult to, to even do by a noble country. We managed to, as a fragile country operating under very serious issues, we managed to do it. The reason being, it comes down to what Habib was saying just before and what the point just that was the question uh, just Frank asked is, um, it's about supporting these countries in an integrated way. That's the key, integrated way, but also it should be tailored to the situational context. Uh, the interactions I've had as a, as a senior technical person uh, working in Somalia, and I'm really pleased to have our governor, the governor of Central Bank is here as well, is that our interactions with the with the, with the IMF as well as with the World Bank and, and, and multilaterals has, has been uh, tailored and partnership, right? And therefore, um, the proposed uh, multilateral uh, reforms should actually use these lessons that we have already, these positive lessons, and actually amplify, amplify them. And this is the, the easiest source of resilience, right? And then this is now the new phrases about resilience, right? Let us use this, right? We have them. So uh, uh, to come back to, to the, the final point I want to emphasize is, we know that fragility is a global bad. We already talked about the, the, the issues for security, conflict, and so on and so on, and climate. But at the same time, uh, fragility is a, is a public bad, a global public bad, that's, that's right. But actually, there are opportunities and we need to unlock them, right? Unlock within these countries. Who will do it, right? The private sector cannot do it because the costs are incredible, right? Risk premiums are incredible. MDPs are well-placed. And that is the point that we are trying to, to, to kind of emphasize. The issue around inclusivity is, is really, really important. Voice is really, really important. And the best way to incorporate those elements together is to talk about not only resilience in the adaptive sense, and that's what most people do, but actually in the transformative sense, right? So uh, back to you. So I think it's very important. And I, I think you all made an Habib as well from the G7 plus perspective, which is actually very welcome. First, you're all recognizing the importance of not supporting those countries, like those countries that are living in a pure stable environment. That's what we call the tailored approach. I can tell you that when I was at the bank, I learned a lot from the African continent. Uh, and we were actually debriefing the Security Council of the UN in connection because of looking at the drivers of fragility and conflict and trying to understand knowing that each fragile country is fragile in its own way, what does that mean in terms of support? It's not just a question of providing financing. Because in any case, the financing is very limited compared to the needs. What is even more important is looking at this opportunity for reform, these windows of opportunity that we heard like in Somalia, trying to see what does it mean in terms of constraints for reforms? What is the political economy? And how we can progressively prioritize the support to make sure it's the most useful at the right time. I think the approach you have seen, we have set up this MDB group actually on fragility and conflict a few years ago. I can tell you that I see more and more MDBs that are looking at 
tailoring approach, looking at the drivers of fragility and conflict, and trying to see what does that mean in terms of evolving. I think the bank is actually a very good example to have followed that approach under IDA and to really look at not just providing financing, but understanding how can we move the needle, looking at the root cause of fragility before putting the country partnership framework. And it's not just the World Bank, it's actually also other organizations, EIB recently, passed a strategy, Asian Development Bank, and before there was actually the African Bank. So I just want to recognize that at least we have made progress in terms of NDPs, recognizing the security, humanitarian, all the challenge that needs to be factored in when development support is being provided. Second point important, I think, is that the very clear uh, yesterday about what is it for humanitarian, what is it for development. Very important for organizations to focus on that mandate. The World Bank mandate is very clear. IMF mandate is very clear, macroeconomic stability. But at the same time, to work with other actors to allow them to perform. MDPs have a key functions focusing at avoiding collapse of the state, of the institution. Is it important to step in? Yes, because otherwise humanitarian actors will not be able to carry out their own tasks. So trying again to, we heard this notion of partnership and breaking silo, I think it's very important. Uh, and moving forward, obviously, it would be more important than ever. So I don't know if we are supposed to take some questions and if we are, yeah, thank you. <coughs> uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Abdurrahman uh, Mohamed Abdullahi. I'm the governor of Central Bank of Somalia. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Ali, uh, former colleague. Thank you, uh, everyone. The topic in discussion uh, is not only critically important, but it is a timely uh, issue that is close to our hearts. As a policymaker from a country that is recovering from uh, long term of instability, I thank you, the IGC and ODI, for organizing this. I also thank uh, the speakers and the experts. Uh, we uh, are one of the fragile states who have benefited from the multilateral support. And through a successive IMF program, mainly financed by uh, multilateral development institutions, uh, through grants, uh, we have received uh, the support that make us come through a challenging period. We managed to digitalize the, our uh, banking sector. And now, Somalia is to about to reach the completion board, the happy completion board. And from there, it starts another challenge. Because as, as soon as the country reaches the happy completion point, then you are left with your own, basically. 
you have to stand on your feet. So somehow uh, can use the analogy maybe uh, an 18 year old boy who has no permanent job and his parents are asking <laughs> to go out and find his way. I'm using that analogy because uh, there is an important thing that I want to highlight. Uh, the need to give voice to fragile states. We want to be given the opportunity to engage and propose instruments that can effectively support and help countries emerging from fragility like Somalia including concessional finance that can help us rebuild the country and come out of fragility. That's the point I would like to make. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you. Hi, thanks. Um, yeah, my name is David Kuiper. I'm at the European uh, DFI Association, the Association of European Development Banks. Um, what you just mentioned the risk premiums are, are way too high. And thank you for mentioning the role of the private sector uh, in fragility. Uh, I think that's very true. Uh, yet we can't wait until everything is right at the public side and then ask the private sector to come in, right? So there really needs to be, I think, a concerted effort to um, help the private sector come in and support uh, this fragility agenda, in particular because acceleration is so important. Um, uh, the demographic numbers are very clear. Uh, you need investments that actually can bring jobs uh, for people under 35 and young people under 15 right now. Um, how do you think the multilateral system can actually help in providing instruments that can help accelerate the uh, the role of the private sector, even in uh, situations of fragility, thinking of uh, facilities that bring concessional finance, that provide some uh, risk-taking capital, uh, provide first loss, thinking about facilities maybe that can help uh, address the local currency uh, risk there is. Um, I do miss a bit in your uh, uh, call for action here, the call for actually calling on investors to come in and calling on the public sector to help investors to come in. I'd like to hear some of your reflections on that. Excellent point. Thank you. Yes. I'd just like to, uh, to have a two-hander on that. My name is Dirk Kipel of Modi Hive. Uh, not just because we share the same country, I think, but we, we, I, we just um, had a round table two, uh, two, one or two months ago uh, on Somalia, uh, and particularly around um, uh, getting more DFIs interested in, in Somalia. 
And there was this, this, this sort of, there were two dimensions to, um, to, to the challenge. So on the one hand, uh, projects may not be um, uh, ready yet. So they may not have the right uh, standards. They may not have the right um, 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 sort of circumstances to attract DFIs. But on the other hand, um, the DFIs are being pushed and to do more in, in federal context. And um, it seems to me that there might be a challenge on, around shareholders that basically that they have, on the one hand, want to push DFIs more into federal context. On the other hand, they require DFIs to adhere by very strict standards. Um, and, 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 and those two things don't go, go together. So there needs to be more flexibility. Uh, around those issues and, and, and think more and working more with, with, the, with, with the countries uh, and the private sector opportunities to bring the various shareholder interests together and sort of say, well, actually, uh, let's, let's be more flexible with, with, with the standards. And I wonder what, what the panel thinks about that around private sector projects in, in federal context and, and be more flexible, have a more flexible approach to the advice in, in federal context. Thank you. Do you want to start? So let me uh, thank uh, the governor first for uh, that really uh, important point around the importance of MDBs and concessional financing for fragile countries. And now uh, it actually connects to the points that uh, both of you made around uh, private investors. I'm just going to explain first what has happened, right? There has been a gap has already emerged over the past. Uh, many, many years, if I just use the example of my country, Somalia, that gap, because uh, international investors, reputable international investors in particular, uh, are very cautious given uh, shareholder demands and so on and so on, and, and the, the need for due diligence and standards, that's fine. But then something unintended has happened. In their absence, a lot of dodgy investors have come to places like Somalia engaging in extractive investment that actually aggravate conflict and fragility. There are examples in the, if you look at the oil, if you look at uh, fisheries, concessions, if you look at in a fragile governance issues, there are issues to do with governance, transparency, corruption, also all sorts of things. Um, now, the, the damage that has caused has become that it, basically, the caution of reputable investors have given these guys incentives to be there, but that has actually damaged relations with the locals, right? So just to give you an example, Somalia, this is confirmed, Somalia is one of the most dynamic mobile, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, telecom, right? Uh, uh, around a lot, of, a lot of things they have done around digitalization, very efficient around that side. A lot of investments by Somali people, right, by Somalis and the diaspora. Now, when reputable companies come and they want to engage and do some sort of joint ventures or something like that, because of this nervousness around and suspicion that has occurred because of the absence of, of reputable uh, uh, investors, uh, things don't move at all, right? So what I'm doing, what I'm saying now is I'm urging uh, uh, international DFIs, international investors to understand that this trust issue is, is there, right? Because uh, other investors have gone in and have, have actually made things a mess, aggravated things, made things even worse. Opportunities are there. 
issues are there in terms of, but there are mechanisms in place that can actually be, uh, that can be employed, uh, deployed to, to mitigate these, these risks. So that's my point. I'm urging uh, investors to uh, basically understand that there are actually uh, failures that have happened in the past, and this is where we are today, right? So that's my point. Thank you. I think this is excellent. I would just maybe add one point, if I may, which is the important role played by NDP in terms of supporting the government to set the right climate investment and framework. So that's one very important point. When you talk about inflation, when you talk about currency, when you look at making sure that you have the right payment system, if that is not functioning, you're not going to get the, the right private sector coming in. You get some private sector, but that's maybe not be the private sector that you want to come in. I think that's very important. So the whole point about macroeconomic stability is essential. The second point, I think, is also to recognize that each country is going to be fragile in its own way, and it's very important to look at the international private sector, but also the local private sector. In many countries, there is huge potential to actually leverage local national private sector, and I think it's very important. Last but not least, it's important to also realize that there has been actually a step up over the past years on which it may be important to build upon. You look at actually MIGA, if not the wrong, that did recently a guarantee in Somalia on renewable energy. Very important, because guess what? Political risk, I'm looking at my colleagues here, is slightly important in this environment. IFC, as well, under the World Bank Group FCD strategy, has been stepping up in terms of transaction in fragile and conflict states. So there has been over the past few years a progress, but the question at the end of the day is to say when you look at the needs, maybe it's also important to look in a more systematic manner beyond the transaction, how can you make sure that you focus on the right enabling environment to bring and step up private sector financing? And I think that's quite important. And that requires the different parts of the same institution, obviously, to talk to each other. We have the right reform in telecom, right reform in agriculture, in energy, and how to make sure that the government, where at the end of the day is on a drastic seat, is going to be able to truly attract the right private sector, either locally or internationally. So thank you for raising the question, because I do think the whole point about private sector is essential, but at the same time, recognize that it's very much linked to setting up the right surrounding environment propitious for this type of intervention. Any other question? Are we supposed to move to the second panel? Second panel is much more interesting than the first one because it's, it's going to look about what can we do. Uh, and having colleagues like Alexia from the US Treasury will be involved in so many past initiatives to look about how can we create incentive for countries also to tackle those issues would be super important. Then you have Martin from the World Bank looking at all the efforts of the bank in terms of the IDA and tackling this issue of fragility and conflict. I think uh, through Hans Peter, correct, will be moderating the second panel. So thank you, everybody. And uh, over to you. So no, we uh, are actually on time, which is quite <laughs> impressive. <laughs> well then, Frank, you also uh, make my job a little bit easier because you've already introduced our panelists for the second session. Um, 
let me just put a few words uh, in <clears throat> ahead of this. Uh, as Frank mentioned, we want to turn to the action. So what is it that's being done about? We have gotten, I think, a very good and very vivid sense of the nature of the problem. We've got a vivid sense of the fact that every fragile situation is different. Um, we've got a sense of the integrated nature of it all, where various factors play together. So uh, we, we have that sense. <clears throat> Question is, uh, what do we do about it? Uh, fragility has been on the agenda uh, of the international community and of the MDBs for some time. Uh, I remember when, when I was with the IFC um, and, <clears throat> and Frank was at the World Bank, uh, we had sort of a period of, of uh, very considerable interest in this topic. It was, we were building up to the World Bank Group strategy on uh, FCB. Uh, it was important that all the shareholders were, were heavily engaged in this. Uh, it was top of the agenda. Now, one question is, is this staying at the top of the agenda or are we going through uh, cycles of interest? Uh, we have very much heard from the presidents at the beginning, uh, but then also from everybody else, that this is a topic that, if anything, is going to get worse uh, and is going to uh, become increasingly, it will have a spillover effect, will become increasingly important as a global challenge, uh, as an issue that will be uh, demanding everybody's uh, attention. So we cannot really let it go away in terms of our uh, attention span. It's going to come back with a vengeance. The World Bank Group uh, is going through this uh, very important strategic uh, uh, thought process, the Evolution Roadmap. I think now it's called the Evolution Update. Um, and uh, it, that is about recognizing uh, that the World Bank, that the whole MDB system, has to be much larger in order to be able to address the very large challenges that we're facing around the world. But it also has to be much better at doing so in various ways, in terms of uh, operating uh, models, uh, in terms of uh, the way they understand their mandates and objectives. Um, so the focus is on bigger and better. Uh, in the public debate, this has often uh, circled around the climate challenge, quite rightly. It's, of course, a, a, a huge challenge for uh, humanity, and the World Bank Group needs to be at the center of that, needs to step up. It's, it's often been related to the pandemic the challenge. Um, we see it reflected in the World Bank Evolution Update uh, that, there, the, that fragility is one of those global challenges. Uh, but in the public debate, it's been, perhaps been uh, sidelined a little bit. Uh, we also don't really see in the Evolution Update how uh, the World Bank Group is going to address this particular global challenge. It is harder to make out exactly uh, from, from what we have today, how exactly the particular circumstances, the integrated nature, the, 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 the multifaceted and, and always very diverse nature of fragility is actually going to be addressed through this renovation of the World Bank Group. Um, and uh, therefore, the question uh, really becomes, you know, <clears throat> how can we address this? And my first question will go to Alexia here. Um, how do shareholders see that? And I know that shareholders actually care. Uh, I know that you care, Alexia, you've always been a great champion of this part. Uh, but how are you going to make sure 
that the World Bank evolution of strategic rethink also uh, is serious about stepping up and having a better and bigger World Bank group in the fragility and conflict uh, space. Great, thank you so much, Hans Peter, and thanks to ODI and thanks to IGC as well for, for um, organizing this, which comes at a perfect time for us because the evolution work that Hans Peter describes so well is a journey. And we're literally at the US Treasury sort of truly opening up the box on the fragility driver of MDB evolution literally now. So this is a perfect way to do it with all of, all of you. And, and I think you're behind your question, you were saying is the political agenda, the political will there to really hone in on, on fragility? And the short answer certainly from the US is absolutely yes, but I think it's not just from the US. One of the drivers, when one year ago, Secretary Yellen sort of made the call for MDB evolution, one of the drivers for that was fragility. She identified three global challenges that she felt if we did not tackle well, we would never have sustained progress on poverty reduction, um, on achievement of sustainable development goals, and fragility, conflict, violence was always there. We haven't done the deep dive on it yet, and I'll be honest. A lens that we used often when we looked at the vision, the operational model, the financial model of the MDBs, we did spend more time on climate up to now. We're now um, shifting also to do fragility. I think the why, the first panel covered the why very well. It, it matters so much. I just wanted to make two points on the why before trying to go into more, how do we think about it? One was linked to a point that Dr. Kavaruka made around um, the demographic challenges and youth. So, I mean, so when Secretary Yellen went to Africa, she said, huge potential, demography, but also demography is not destiny. And if we don't have jobs for the 1.7 million Africans entering the workforce every single month, they will be easy recruits um, for folks that we don't like too much. So that's, I just wanted to make that point. The other point that really resonated with me, Abdi, you made, which is if not us, us collectively, who? And the who could be quite ugly. I come from Haiti, my parents come from Haiti originally, and I you can make a lot of money in fragile situations, but it's not you know money for good purposes, it's really extractive money. Okay, so let's go into, into sort of what did, what do we do about this? So I don't have all this, I don't have the solutions, but I wanna share with you, so Frank, sorry, but I wanna share with you sort of the, the work agenda that we see for ourselves at Treasury with partners and perhaps maybe ODI and, and uh, can even help us continue this, this thought process. So the first piece is around vision and mission. So we had you know, three core pillars around MDB evolution, vision and mission. I really believe, and I think all the speakers said this, that fragility and development, that fragility and climate, these are intertwined. And I think we should put to rest the idea that it's one or the other, they're mutually reinforcing. I think the World Bank certainly is saying that this week um, with, with, with their new vision. So I hope we can put that to rest. But I think there's still some principled vision type items that shareholders have to get aligned on. So one is the question of engagement. When, how do we stay engaged in countries? I think Afghanistan is a really um, a good example. We want, we must be there for the people at Afghanistan. We have a problem with the group of people currently running the country. How do we support one without giving credibility to the other? I don't think we have clear enough frameworks 
as shareholders of the MDBs to give clear guidance um, to the MDBs. I think we've made progress in that. I think there's a movement towards not engaging or always stepping out or stepping out, stepping in, stepping out is dangerous, but exactly what engagement looks like. So I think that's a big thing on our agenda to think about. The other is we can pretend that we can address all of this from a technical perspective, um, and it's not true. I mean, this is fundamental, at its best it's political economy, reality it's politics even. And so how can we have more above the board, frank discussions about that reality um, in the context of the NDBs without politicizing the NDBs? So I think it's real challenging, but I think if we don't have these real conversations, we're always going to be limited in what in what um, in what we can what we can do, and then of course I do believe, and here the World Bank has done a lot that from the vision flows really embedding fragility um, in the diagnostic of work of the of the institution. I think that's really critical, and then flowing it through implementation and flowing it through accountability, results, monitoring, and learning. Okay. Then the second area is around the operational model. And I think there's some real questions here. The first one is around partnerships. And this is part of the ADAPT, I think, strategy of the World Bank. Working effectively, I think, in these contexts requires different kinds of partnerships and different ways of building the partnerships and really having the incentives for staff to uh, fully develop these partnerships, I think, is, is part of the agenda. I think uh, what instruments do we need? A lot of people spoke about uh, concessionality. And, and that's obviously going to have to be part of the equation. There's a lot of work happening right now around concessionality principles and allocation decisions. The most concessional money will always be scarce. And so we need to be really smart about where it is the most additional. Can we incorporate an element of vulnerability and how do you define that into allocation decisions so that you're not throwing little bits of money at really tough situations, but you're actually doing enough to maybe turn around um, a situation, I think that vault that matters as well. Um, um, and then speed and agility. I think that sort of, I think you talk about it as, as respond dynamically at the World Bank, but speed and agility, I think is critical. And if you wait, you wait, how do you come in early? How do you come in when you see the warning signs? I think that permission to come in early and fast is something that we still have to work on. Let me, I know I'm going long, so let me go quickly to financial capacity. I hear, here I wanna actually start with administrative costs, that may sound weird, but it costs more to work well in most of these environments. And so we can talk a lot about the volumes for countries, which matters and for programs, but we need to put administrative costs, I believe, on the table to be able to do effective work. We need to think about staff incentives as well. How do we get the best staff working safely um, in, 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 um, in, in these contexts, I think is really important. Um, and then I talked about concessionality already, so I'll, I'll move on. And then on private capital mobilization, which is a, a cross-cutting theme for MDB evolution. Frank, I'm really glad you talked about local private sector because we say private sector in the development sphere. And I mean, there's 500 different things that could be private sector. What are we talking about? And I think really in the most fragile countries, trying to think that we're going to have block rock you know, coming in does not make sense. But how do you support a local private sector, maybe informal at first, but then not informal. How do we think not about just basic needs and basic delivery in fragile situations, but how do we think about innovation and leapfrog? I think the example of Somalia and digital, sometimes we say, you know, it's, it's, it's a fragile country, it's a low capacity country, do something simple, the basics. Well, actually, maybe you need to actually be more innovative um, to actually help that country get through um, a really bad spot. So I think we need to rethink a lot of our conventional wisdom 
it's on the political agenda. We need all of you and your technical expertise. And the last point on the voice is actually, again, maybe ODI can help. If we can find ways to get direct, frank feedback from countries to help build out this agenda that I just described, Tom Speeder, that would be something that we would be very happy to do with folks in this room and some others. Thank you. Thank you. And <clears throat> it's ODI and IGC. <laughs> Um, that was uh, really, really interesting. It was sort of very comprehensive view of the different elements and that we see you took you took them out of the evolution update and you gave them sort of a uh, an FCD uh, twist. <clears throat> so the question is, how are we going to get there? How are we going to do that? And Martin, I want to uh, would like to hear that from from you a little bit. Um, uh, just so drawing on your experience as uh, South Asia VP and. Uh, and I know just generally a very thoughtful member of the management team at, at the World Bank. You look at the evolution roadmap, there are lots of very good ideas. In fact, I'm, I'm quite impressed by what has happened over the past year to the evolution roadmap. It is a, it's a really ambitious and, and interesting document now. Uh, and it, it offers a variety of, uh, of uh, avenues for how to do things differently in order to be bigger and better. Yeah? And uh, we've heard some of those from Alexia. Think about country platforms, or the think, think about the, the way of, of uh, working in partnership. Uh, think about the integration of public and private, the deep integration, strategic integration of public and private. Think about uh, frameworks for conceptionality um, and, and all these other things. Um, how do you see that happening from your experience? Uh, <clears throat> how are you going to implement a uh, bigger and better fertility uh, emphasis priority in your work. Uh, thanks a lot, Hans-Peter, and thank you to ODI and, and ICG for, for inviting me. I, I feel um, my colleague Victoria Kwakwa should be sitting here, or, or uh, Usman uh, uh, Dion, but, but I do have a lot of fragility in South Asia. And the interesting about thing about fragility in South Asia, it's not the way we classify fragile and conflict states. I do have one of those, that's Afghanistan, but it will have a lot of fragility in the rest of the region. And that fragility is interlinked. It comes from climate, think of the floods in Pakistan. It comes from macroeconomic crises, think of the impact uh, that, the, uh, that the debt default had on livelihoods in Sri Lanka. Uh, it comes from uh, old historical divisions and political divisions and issues that are very difficult to talk about. Uh, think of some of the uh, events in the northeastern part of India, for example. Uh, so I do think uh, we need to to move away from the concept that fragility is a subset of Uh, so I think there is already a reflection 40, from four, from one four to four four, um, or for in dollar terms from seven and a half billion to thirty point five billion that goes to that subset of countries that's identified as fragile and conflict. But since you're asking what's new, I mean this is something we've already done, and I think it recognizes how much we place importance on the issue of fragility. Um, but clearly, fragility extends beyond the subset of countries that. Um, are affected uh, or that we group in that category and the problems are interlinked. So 
you know, we need to think of multi-crises not as lots of shocks that we need to react to, but as a new normal that we need to uh, change to meet. And that includes some of the open questions that you asked, Alexia, which I'm not going to try and answer here because um, I, I wish I had good answers to how we deal with the for instance, with the difficult issues of politics that are behind a lot of these issues, but I could also mention justice and security reform, et cetera, all issues on which I don't think at the World Bank we have complete already answers in the evolution roadmap or even in our uh, thinking. So those are questions that remain on the table. Uh, now, with respect to what can we do with the, with the evolving framework that we have, uh, I do think a really important part of this, I'll mention three. Uh, the first is reducing the silos. The problems are interlinked, and so the solutions need to be multi-sectoral. And yet, I think we all know that in the way we are organized, um, you know, if you have a social problem, well, the social ministry contacts the social specialists, and you get a social project. And if you have an environmental problem, the environment ministry contacts the environmental specialist, and you get an environmental project. But if you want to deal with fragility, that's not the way to think about it. And it's not the way to think about it for our clients, and it shouldn't be the way we think about it in the World Bank. So really getting to multi-sectoriality and the way we implement and design and implement, I think is critical. Um, the second is this notion of partnerships. Uh, and I think Afghanistan is actually a very good example of what can be achieved. Uh, we've done a retrospective of what was done in Afghanistan over the uh, 20 years until 2021. And actually the things that work best were national platforms with multiple donors through a combined effort. And I think we already have examples of country platforms. We should build on, on the knowledge that we've gained there and use the impetus for partnership at the country level and possibly at the regional level. And talking of silos, just thinking of Afghanistan, the borders of Afghanistan, Afghanistan is a South Asia, but the, it borders three of the other World Bank regions. It borders MENA in Iran, it borders Central Asia and ECA in, 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 uh, on the north. It borders China, EAP, <laughs> in the east, uh, and other countries in South Asia in the, in the south. So obviously not just across sectorial lines, but also in the way we organize regionally as a South Asia vice president, some of the issues, some of the most important issues we face in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, indeed, I cannot resolve without being in constant collaboration, constant talk, with my colleagues uh, in uh, in Central Asia, in MENA, or or in uh, so I think partnerships, silos, uh, and then the third is concessionality. Now I do think concessionality is is not a solution for some of the um, intractable political problems because if the origin of the problem is political, putting concessional money on the table is probably not going to help solve it. But I do think uh, the instruments we're developing. Uh, you know, to deal with global challenges, allow us to expand our engagement in areas, uh, for instance, like climate adaptation, where spillovers are crucially important and where, uh, frankly, um, uh, you know, governments have multiple priorities. But, but if, you could, if you could mobilize these windows under a global challenges program to deal with climate adaptation, for example, to deal with immediate causes of fragility uh, related to climate, I think more concessional funds would make a big difference. Uh, and so in that sense, I do think the better bank that we want, the more integrated, less siloed bank, uh, the more agile bank uh, that reacts more quickly, 
um, to be credible and to really say we're going to make a dent in these problems also does need to be a bigger bank. And, and I'm, 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 I'm very hopeful uh, that that will be reflected in the upcoming discussions at the Ida Midterm Review, where we're looking for additional resources for the crisis response window, uh, but also uh, in subsequent discussions about the broader financial architecture of, of the bank. Uh, so let me stop. I just follow up very quickly. You mentioned the global challenge programs, which are one of the really interesting innovations that are being put forward. Is there a global challenge program? I should probably know for fragility. Uh, is it something that uh, <coughs> one one could recommend that uh, that that should be uh, put together? The way I look at the global challenges program, it's a way to bring solutions to scale. So think of energy access. Many countries face issues of energy access and you look for scalability and replicability to try and get results on a global, on a global level. I think if I listen to Franck Bousquet, who knows this so much better than me, every fragility is different. So what we think we can do is have global challenge programs on resilience, reduce the number of people that are affected by certain shocks. Uh, but I do think we should have uh, we should have a lot of learning across uh, what we do in fragility. So I'm I'm not excluding that at some point we might want to call it that. I don't think it's in the initial list. But there also um, I think this is an additional attempt to try and create more synergy across the work we do at the country level, so that we can learn from each other more quickly, that we can replicate what works, and that we can set ourselves targets that are not at the micro, but that, that are that are at a sufficiently ambitious micro level. So that's how I look at them. And in that context, I, I, I certainly would be open, but I don't think it's in that it's in that initial list. Let me just say in that context, because we I, there was one point I wanted to make, which picks up on what Alexia was saying in her opening remarks. One of the things that we need to learn from our work in fragile countries is the need to innovate to deal with the circumstances. And there is a lot of innovation. Think of unconditional cash transfers. That's some really interesting work that demonstrates how if you lift people across a certain threshold, actually they start building the institutions, they start building the resilience themselves. So we think of delivery mechanisms, we think of strengthening institutions, but in some very fragile context, maybe the best thing you can do is give people enough of, of, of support to be able to start doing this themselves, bottom up. Uh, and, and I think there are many other examples uh, in the digital delivery of services, et cetera, where because the context is difficult, the work that we do in fragile states is helping us learn things that we will be able to apply elsewhere. Thank you. Now I wanted to ask uh, Hassan, um, our conversation starter. Hassan, please. <laughs> Um, my name is Hassan Hanso. I'm the Chief Economic Advisor and everybody, President of Somalia and the Executive Director of the National Economic Council. Um, I enjoy the conversation, and this is a conversation that I have followed uh, um, in different uh, institutions, but embedding fragility into the mission and the vision and operations of the MDPs uh, is a welcome idea. However, it, it seems that uh, the 
if the focus uh, in terms of tools and the focus of it is geared towards countries that might be have a more stable and capable institutions rather than countries uh, in the most fragile quartile uh, of the list. Uh, in, uh, in Somalia, um, we do not want to turn the conversation to Somalia, but there is this, this, uh, this is a topic that we care too much about. <laughs> uh, Somalia is a victim of climate change. Even though we haven't contributed to the emissions, we are really suffering because of it. Uh, but it is very difficult uh, for us Somalis to have a conversation around fragility in which we say, or all of us agree that climate change is a driver, the, more, the strongest driver of fragility in our country. And I will, um, there is an example that I would like to tell you, I would like to use to just to demonstrate what that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, in 2019, uh, a Turkish company, um, came to Somalia to invest in an infrastructure uh, um, infrastructure project. It is 30 kilometers of, of road from the, uh, the capital to a nearby village, 30 kilometers away from the capital. While they were busy in building that um, road, a number of engineers have been killed by explosions, attacked by terrorists. Um, a lot of um, workers lost important organs of their body. The project has been delayed several times. A lot of equipments have been destroyed. So yes, we say uh, climate change is a driver of, of fragility in Somalia, but that is not the most visible one. So what even comes before climate change, even though the effect is very brutal in the country in Somalia, is weak security, um, political tensions, um, economic issues, uh, as well as uh, uh, other social uh, factors. So when I said the, the, tool, the focus is geared towards countries that are really doing well, uh, it seems that the supply side of it, the design side of it, uh, is being uh, constructed in a way that is very difficult for countries like us to access. So the issue of climate change, for example, uh, we have not been able to access climate finance because the way our institutions are built, the capacity needs of our um, institutions does not put them in a position that they are able to access climate finance. Um, around the private sector, um, if we involve the private sector, borrowing costs is an issue uh, and uh, affordability of that, even those types of projects to address uh, fragility is also another issue. Um, so, this takes me to uh, to amplify the message by the governor of the central bank 
Professor Abdurrahman, uh, for the need of fragile states like Somalia to have a voice in these conversations. What is what? What would be the priorities for these countries? And uh, second, there have been pledges that have been made over the years, and uh, we don't feel that most of, the, of those pledges honored. So, so it seems that from the supply side, things are designed, pledges are made, but accessing uh, is very difficult for us because of the way things are. And I hope that um, countries like uh, Somalia are given the voice to just say what their priorities are and how those could be achieved. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hassan. I think that was a really very vivid and, and powerful statement. And it brings out once once more the, the incredible diversity of, of these of the situations that countries are facing, and therefore also the very different ways in which they will have to be addressed. Uh, and uh, at the challenge that, that faces the World Bank Group and, and uh, other institutions in trying to help in this context. Now, one <coughs> way, one important factor much more important than just a few years ago in, in the evolution roadmap and the debate generally is the private sector, whether we can bring the private sector. When we were working on the uh, uh, on the FCV strategy for the World Bank Group, <coughs> private sector was suddenly, I think that was the first time really, a, a factor uh, in that uh, strategy because it was felt that the private sector actually had possibilities that the public sector doesn't have. When the institutions are weak, when, when you are occupied with gang violence in, in Port-au-Prince, uh, uh, those are the immediate concerns. The state doesn't have this capacity at what you were just describing as well. But the private sector is still there. And that's sort of the interesting thing because people have to live. And you find supply chains that reach deep into these troubled environments. Uh, and <clears throat> there was this sense that uh, yeah, we have to make the private sector an agent of change in uh, fragility. We have also heard uh, from Abdi and others before how careful we have to be about that. It's not just any private sector, because, um, and I've seen that in the in DRC, for instance, private sector can become the, the source of the, the problem, actually. Um, so how do we do that? And uh, Hela, I saw your hand up. Uh, that was probably a mistake, <laughs> because we would really like to hear from you how does the IFC, how do you see uh, the, the DFIs relating to this strategy, which I think today is, uh, is a much, uh, much more prominent one than, than before? The private sector and the evolution roadmap and fertility. Thank you, Hans Peter. And um, all the speakers have been fantastic uh, today. Um, so, yes, uh, the um, IFC had started its own evolution even before I joined it with IFC 3.0, where uh, there was a capital increase. And uh, part of the commitments there was that 40% of our growing volume of activity would be or should be in IDA and FCS countries. And to do that, we created the concept of um, putting a lot more human resources into preparing operations and projects earlier on so that they can meet the criteria of investability, like you said, the right type of private sector operations. So in IFC, I'm in charge of a new region. You can think of it as Western Asia, the 
The name is long, it's Middle East, Turkey, Central Asia, and Pakistan, Afghanistan. What I can observe if I want to do 40% of FCV financing and IDA in my region, I would face great difficulty. Why? Because, and we heard people talk about countries, um, and then thankfully uh, people spoke about the local private sector, because a country is not just the government. The population ends up being held hostage of that regime, but the country is made up of the government, the private sector, and the civil society. And so as development and humanitarian and peacekeeping and climate action all converge, how can uh, a multilateral development banks, when working with private financing, stay engaged with a right authorizing environment if we agree that every innocent life matters, how can we just not suddenly drop and go uh, and disappear on our clients? Um, especially as it was mentioned, uh, the length of conflicts is longer. What is interesting, which speakers picked up on, is that you know that remittances actually dwarf ODA and FDI in developing countries. And in a context of fragility, the diaspora will stay there. And some of the work we are doing in Yemen, for instance, for food security is with um, diaspora companies that, uh, that moved. So the local private sector and the diaspora is very important. So how do we incentivize that? Couple of ideas, uh, and they are not new. Every time that we make it uh, cheaper for the remittances to go, we are making more money arrive to those fragile communities. So lower the cost of remittances transfer. Number two, um, the countries that are generous enough to allow for capable uh, people to come and live and work in their countries, that creates all that uh, sustainable flow of financing. And most of these um, refugee actually end up in the neighboring countries, which are developing countries themselves. And, and that creates a lot of resentment by the host communities. But that's an area uh, we have created a joint secretariat between IFC and UNHCR to work on this issue of inter displaced people, especially refugees. How can private sector financing goes to the host communities, not only to the displaced people, so that there is a harmony? Um, I don't want to take too much time, but there are a few important points I wanted to say, and it was raised previously. Super important that the shareholders of multilateral development banks social, show some tolerance to risks. The zero risk doesn't exist in the fragile countries, definitely. The IDD, Integrity Due Diligence, will raise some red flags, and we need to assess the materiality of the risk and in some instances, have the mitigating factor and proceed. The zero risk on environmental social government will not exist. So we need to assess the benefits to the communities versus. And so while at management, for instance, in IC, we have adopted new risk guardrails that make us be more willing. But the reality is when you have an, a, 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 the ombudsman case on you know, workers issue, whatever. These are very relevant, but the amount of human capital that has to go to this is disproportionate. And people become very risk averse and abandon whole countries or industries. Um, on concessionality, yes, there is dearth of concessional finance. 
for private sector operations in fragile countries, particularly when you go outside of pure IDA. For IDA blend, very limiting because it's private sector window uh, does not apply the way it does in pure IDA. And when you are unfortunately a fragile, but not IDA, then we have almost no recourse. So um, easing the access to other trust funds in, within the World Bank or managed by the World Bank, like the Green Climate Fund, the Climate Investment Funds, the Health and Pandemic Fund, the Global Environment Facility or Fund, Jeff, uh, the IDA Crisis Response Window, the Global Public Goods, which is Livable Planet Trust Fund, most seem to be mostly concentrated on sovereign operations, and it would be great to find ways for private sector to have a role. Um, okay, I'm going to pause because there are too many points, but um, the point on staff is very important, that people who love working in SCVs shouldn't become their career. Actually, that should be a springboard for them to have more career development. Um, and um, we need to also have institutions like my, my own, which thankfully now the people here, Ajay and Mukhtar, talk about the role of private sector in adaptation, biodiversity, preservation, resilience, etc. It's not only a risk management issue. Private sector has to be part of those investments. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Ella. <clears throat> and uh, so one of the frustrating things of having worked for decades in the international financial institutions is that uh, many of these themes are not new. So what you're saying about staff incentives to to essentially uh, you know make it make it more attractive for staff to do the most difficult things that's been on the agenda for ages. It was probably when you were at EBRD. Uh, it was certainly when I was at the ICE. Um, so uh, why isn't that happening? How can we make it happen? Is the evolution roadmap now a possibility? I saw a few other hands up. Um, I want to, one, two, three, four. I want to uh, give Alexia uh, one minute to respond to one really important point that's been made. And that is, are shareholders going to give these institutions the flexibility to do this job? Uh, to take a risk-based approach to um, environment and, and social and governance issues. We all know how hard it is to work in these difficult environments and then to be, to be burdened by, um, by constraints that are uh, you know, hard to reach even for more advanced countries. It's a real issue. I see Luc uh, Sonnefeld at, at the back, and I know the Feronia case in, in the DRC is a famous one. Institutions trying to do the good thing Big time, lots of people benefiting, and then it all just, uh, you know, uh, got, got punished uh, because of, of these. Our shareholders going to give these institutions flexibility. I'll be honest, it's really tough. And I'm looking at Glenn uh, here, who used to be with the UK, and the Guardian front page, you know, horror for shareholders. So I think it's really tough. What I will say is that um, when the US speaks about MD evolution, we often say it's also about the shareholders. So the exercise was not just about management and staff of the MDBs, but it's about us, first of all, us being more aligned, us also being not providing 10 different guidance that contradict each other. Um, so, so it's on the agenda, I think I would say, for us to think about, but I would be uh, misleading you, you know, if I were to say it's going to be easy. Because, you know, the reality is in many different shareholder systems, you know, the wrong person hears one headline and it literally can threaten in the U.S. context, the appropriation for a bank. 
Um, so it's about talking frankly, it's about communication, it's about fast failing and, and transparency when things go wrong and willing to have the tough conversation so that we go to the hill and say, hey, this happened, let's talk about it. So I think it's it's a quite different way, honestly, of, of, of working and culture of, of being, you know, upfront and, 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 and we don't, we weren't trying to hide before, but I think collectively we just have to, when things go wrong, oh, talk about it much faster, much sooner. We can't be repeating mistakes either over and over. So risk is about allowing for failure, but not the same ones over and over. Um, it's on the agenda, I guess is the, is the shortest answer, but very complex, but very important point. So we've all taken note. <laughs> um, so we had a few hands up. Uh, shall we start here? Yes. Thank you very much. So my name is Gwen Hines and I'm the Chief Executive of Save the Children in the UK. And uh, like Dr. Kaburuka, I have a lot of formers, including being a shareholder, being a donor, working for the UK, working for the EU, lots of different places. Um, I really like this conversation. So credit to ODI and the Growth Centre for setting it up and, and credit to everybody for speaking so frankly and from your heart about what needs to happen and the challenges. Um, also credit to, I know that Dr. Kabruka has left, but talking about demographics, because to me, it's really important to map poverty, climate risks, what we know is gonna come down and then put demographics on top. And that is why the Sahel is so important as a region. But that's also why you then come to this really tough conversation, which you said, Alexia, about, well, how do we work in some of these contexts? So, so credit to Frank for the changes he made when I was on the board. Credit to Martin, to you and your teams, and all the teams across the bank and you know, across other MDBs who are trying to be creative and focus on what really matters. And credit to governments like Somalia. We have a fantastic partnership of thinking about how do we actually make this work. A couple of thoughts. So firstly, what I haven't heard talked about much is how do we tackle inequality and exclusion? Because we know that is a driver of conflict. And we know that's not something where it's just about money. Money matters and how money is allocated and spent obviously matters, but policy also matters. Now, after 25 years, this is the first job I'm working in the UK. We work in the UK, the same as we work in Somalia, the same as we work in Fiji, everywhere around the world. So we work a lot on inequality policy issues in the UK, believe you me. And I think for the, the World Bank Group Evolution, we're not talking enough about that policy role that the World Bank Group brings and that influence that you have, you know, and again, I won't tell you the country, but I went to a particular country recently, you know, and I was talking about, well, hang on, in this country, they're spending 1% on education. Is this a concern for the World Bank Room team? Is it is a concern for me? Is it a concern for what I was seeing? And they said, yeah, we're doing a study, and the study will show this is a problem, and we hope that will lead to people spotting this and having a conversation. I'm saying, okay, let's Time is short, there's a lot we all have to do. The world is on fire, let's have the proper conversation. I know it's hard. I used to be a country director for the British government. It's really tough, but we have to have those open and honest conversations about what's happening. The second thing is around the operating model. And as I say, and I think other people have said, there's so many different contexts within this FCB label, and I think it's really important. So in Somalia, we're really pleased to be working with the government to reach the areas that you can't, to do the things where we compliment you. In Yemen, we're becoming a direct delivery partner for the bank. But as you say, um, Alexia, it's the countries like Afghanistan, it's Niger, where everything is now suspended. So the places where people most need health, education, the resources, 
are the places where it's really hard to work. Now, in my former life, I drew nice, clear divisions of labor, who did what, which institution did what. But I think, again, the reality is that the World Bank Group is the main development finance source in the entire system. I don't know what the answer is, but I think we do have to think about how do we reach some of those places. And now sitting in Save the Children Civil Society, you know, the reason we can still work in places like Afghanistan, Niger, is we've been there for decades and we're trusted in the community. Now, I don't know if the answer is us doing more direct delivery. I mean, I'm sure the staff would love it. You know, we would happily take the funds and spend the money really, really well. But I think, again, it's, it's a question we all have to begin to answer. What is the model in some of these countries? Because otherwise, when we get to 2030 and there's a huge chunk of people who need help, how is the bank and the other MDPs going to reach them? Thank you. Thank you. That was really, really interesting. And I, I hope that you uh, have had sort of satisfying <laughs> answers for everybody. Um, let's take the other questions first. Yeah, behind you. Thank you very much. I'm Katrin Lorenz. I'm now country director of Morocco for GIZ, German Development Corporation. In my former life, I used to be director uh, governance contract utility for GIZ. So I also bring some of that experience and I worked in the Palestinian territories for a couple of years. I have a question that uh, goes really well with your question. Uh, a couple of years ago, we used to hear a lot about the humanitarian development nexus. So actually bringing these different actors with different mandates closely together in in the context to work according to their mandates and complementarity. Since I haven't heard the term today, and we're talking about a strategy for the future, I'm wondering if how how do you look at this now, and how do you look at partnerships uh, also with the UN system in these contexts, and, and what's on the agenda there? And the second point I'd like to make, also coming from our experience, of course, every country context is, is particular, and programming goes by country, and of course has to align with country priorities. But uh, we feel also from our work that taking the regional approach and looking more, for example, not only at the Sahel classical countries, but at coastal Western Africa and Ghana and other countries, just to take this example, in a more regionalized approach. Is that a pathway for the future? Maybe also to look in fragile settings from a different perspective. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, let's take uh, two more. We had uh, Bianca, hit her hand up. Hi everyone, thank you. I'm Bianca Getzel. I work at ODI on MDBs and DFIs. This was great. Um, and one of the questions that comes clear to me is, so we're defining fragility as a global challenge, absolutely. But when we're looking at the concessionality framework of the World Bank and trying to define what that looks like specifically, what parts of working in fragile countries factor as a global public good? Is it all of it? If so, what does that mean for things that then help mobilize the private sector? Does the IDA private sector window, does that get consumed into a bigger fund that focuses on global public goods? So what? how do we define fragility as a global public good? And what does that mean for where we allocate concessional money and thus mobilize the private sector? Uh, that's a very good and practical question. Um, and uh, last question. Yeah. So, so that I briefly raised up, I have to shake a hand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we thought there was an exodus, and then suddenly, you know, it's okay, back. No, sorry. So my name is Stefan Dercon. Um, we all have histories as well. I used to be with the UK. It was a long time, well, not that long ago, but anyway. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, 
a question. And, you know, the, I mean, I'm, first of all, I want to say it, it's, it's really important that, you know, and the kind of senior people in this room, it's showing again how important it is to make sure we don't forget fragility in the roadmap in all the discussions. And, and I'm glad to hear what Alexia said, it's all meant to be part of it, but we don't hear enough about it. So we need to make sure we hear it. And it's so crucial for so many things. But I will immediately add that I don't like the word fragility. It's such a euphemism. Try to cover a lot of things that easily can be said. And I was very pleased that Hassan mentioned it. Oh, let's make climate. Oh, that's a key part of the fragility. You know, but there's other fragilities that are not part of climate. They may come together, but they're not part of climate. And you know, it is a and it is a little bit to do with you know. It's always when you talk about fragile countries, you want to quote Tolstoy and happy families. You know, happy families are happy in the same way, but unhappy families are unhappy in very particular ways. And fragile states are all very, very particular. And I worry actually a lot. And and I and 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 I worry a lot about the idea. Oh, we can easily transfer knowledge from other places. Now, usually it's such a mess. It's a very specific mess, and it needs a deep understanding. And that mess, as Gwen maybe was alluding to, it's also very political. And it's very hard for, you know, having technical solutions from outside. And my question, first question is, can the bank work politically in these places? Not least in the geopolitics, think of the Sahel. If we don't think carefully about how you operate, how do you do this? You, you, by Even by being neutral, you're political. So you have to be really thinking carefully. So can one do this? And it should not just be about risk towards Congress or UK Parliament or something. It should be in these countries, can we actually do it? And this related thing is, and it was mentioned, and I was very pleased to mention, all private sector is in all kinds of different ways. You know that I don't never believe there is such a thing as a private sector, not least in these places. It's so diverse. Sometimes it's a problem, sometimes a thing. I was giving support in recently for the bank support in, on, on Pakistan. You know, private sector is the army. It's part of the biggest part of the problem of the whole thing. You have to be really careful. I uh, was in Yemen giving support. There are spoilers in the private sector who make massive amounts of money from the conflict, who will all do all they can to, to avoid the ceasefire. There's others that are totally suffering from it. So how can then when we talk about private sector, how can we do this? And so that last bit is definitely about analytical work. I find that the bank is really weak in the analytical work on fragile states about what these economies actually are and how they function, because they do not function like an ordinary economy anymore in these things. And then the first question was, can you work politically as well? Thank you. Oh, excellent. Thanks. And because of the complexity, diagnostics are particularly important, but they are highlighted in the evolution roadmap. So I'm going back to uh, what we're looking at here. Um, Alexia, <clears throat> there were many questions. Um, you have one minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right, diagnostics, yes, and that allows us also to understand different drivers and get to the specificities. Um, yes, Hassan, I think security is a major issue. Secretary Yellen brought 10 finance ministers from Africa together that were not fragile countries, but every single one of them talked about the risk of security coming to their countries as the number one concern for lots of reasons, including just how much of the budget was being diverted from education, from health, to security. Um, um, okay, private sector, I mean, you know, I don't think the private sector 
people talk about the private sector as this monolithic thing. So we need to be specific domestic corporates. When you say in the toughest places you still see the private sector, it's often the corporates. It's not the you know pension funds. I think we just need to be 10 times more specific about what we're talking about. But I think there are opportunities, um, but we need to be smart about that. Um, yes, I think that when we talk about um, concessionality, and Bianca, we're not gonna answer your question because that's the post-Marrakesh work is to think about that allocation piece really smartly, which is gonna be really, really difficult. Um, but but I will say that it's not just about the Global Public is Good Fund. It really is looking at the full architecture. Someone was talking about, you know, all the, I think it was, I think it was Hella, about the, the all the different trust funds that are there is how do we use the concessionality in the system smartly, broadly. So it's not just about that. Regional approaches, absolutely, sometimes. Um, um, but I think, and part of the evolution agenda actually is to try to make sure the bank can work better at the supranational level, at the, when needed, at the regional level, when needed, at the, um, sub-national level when needed and have that flexibility. So agree with um, that for sure. And then I will end and thank you so much, um, Gwen, for mentioning the policy piece. It's, it's a huge part of the evolution agenda. The better, Martin, you said, and I would argue it will be 10 times harder to do the policy and to do the better than to do the bigger. Whenever you say that, people say, oh, you don't want to give money. I understand it takes money to do things. But let me tell you that if we don't spend time on the better and the policy, we will be having the exact same discussion 10 years from now. Great. Thank you. Uh, Martin, if you could also answer whether the World Bank might work more through the CSOs, organizations that are actually on the ground. Well, in the one fragile country that I have, we do, and we only do through others. Um, so I think I think we have some experience just to answer Catherine uh, Lawrence's question, I think it's really important. I think the fact that we still have these separate humanitarian development coordination mechanisms is a bit of an aberration. Ideally, it should be one. Um, they exist because some of our shareholders, some of our biggest contributors are organized that way. Uh, and we need to pick them up where they are. But frankly, I think um, it's much easier to think about them as part of this maybe two sides of the same point. So uh, very much a direction that I am supportive of. Um, the only other thing I will say is a lot of the other comments boil down to, to the World Bank have guts to speak truth to power. Um, and I think, frankly, um, if we're going to speak truth to power, we should speak truth to power to everybody. And that means everybody. So let's have a conversation on the board about that tolerance. Um, in the meantime, I do think there are many people in the ground among country directors that are very smart in how they deal with very complex political situations. And I think we need to learn from their experience and we need to support them better. I think there's lots of things that we can do to give uh, country directors, but also country teams more support in not only in doing analytical knowledge work, but the much more practical question of how to operate, who to talk to, when to speak through someone else, who to mobilize, when a private sector is a force for good, when do you need to do the background check to know that you're not getting in bed with the wrong person, and so on and so forth. I think there's lots of practical issues involved when you deal and when you live in these countries. I spent, this, I, I've only lived in Washington for one year now. My previous 20 years in the bank were all in the field. Uh, I feel that that perspective is, is sometimes underappreciated um, amongst, um, in the corporate conversation. So there is a lot of tacit knowledge, 
but I agree we can do better in bringing it out and better in giving guidance to people who face these realities on the ground. So I appreciate the provocation and uh, we will, uh, we'll, um, uh, we certainly will bring this into the conversation. Thank you. So thank you both. I think you were a fantastic panel. Also thought that you were a fantastic, uh, uh, how do we call you? Audience, um, <laughs> very, very active and with a lot of substance uh, there. And I think we, we hopefully have made a uh, note. Uh, we, have, uh, we have ticked everything that's been said and we will uh, try to, to um, reflect that in a post-mortem for uh, <clears throat> which you should get and we will certainly stay in touch. So I thought this was a uh, really, really great session. I'm not gonna take any more time, even though I would love to, um, but we are running out of it. And I hope, uh, Frank, that your final remarks were good final remarks earlier, and Martin, that your final remarks were good final remarks, then we can give this time to Sarah to close us here for the day. So thanks, and please give a big hand to this. Thank you so much, and Peter, and Alex, and Martin, and everyone, and I'm sorry I couldn't be here earlier. I was actually the one of one of the very few roundtables on IDA replenishment that we're having this week. So I had to prioritize at the beginning. And I'm going to try and sum up from when I joined, which was like two thirds of the conversation, I think. But I've heard a lot of things that I would have said at the beginning, you know, starting with what Stefan was just saying about how I personally hate the word fragility. I think it's a sloppy word, but it continues to have enormous purchase in, you know, in, um, in international development policy. But it is, you know, far too all-encompassing to be analytically useful. You know, it just, you know, it's discriminatory. That's why I don't particularly like it. It's, it's often applied just to low and middle income countries. You know, when Berlusconi was prime minister in my country, in Italy, my country of origin, I used to say, well, you know, why is Italy a fragile state if it's a monopoly of the media, corruption, there were a lot of indicators that would have been used in any other situation. And, you know, so it is often derogatory. So I have a real problem with that because it hides a huge range of vulnerabilities. Um, and who defines fragility is hugely contested, of course. You know, who, who has the monopoly on calling another state, another country fragile? So we need to do a lot of work on the taxonomy, and that's something we've been trying to do at ODI for a long time. And if anyone comes up with a better taxonomy, you'll get a prize from ODI because we haven't managed yet. However, the fact that the, the term is not helpful doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about how we can better work in countries that are affected by violence, that are unstable, you know, where there is you know conflict. That is a priority because these are particularly with you know, climate compounding some of these challenges. We've heard about migration, of course, the impact that it has on uh, in disrupting service delivery, on, on impairing development outcomes. These are compound you know, challenges. And so we absolutely need to prioritize how we invest there. Um, one thing I've heard only a little bit about, and I'd like to stress a bit further, is how important it is, you know, the interventions in fragile states really need to center on the effectiveness of the state. You know, it's the politics question the, the, or, or issue that sort of came up, but it's so central, it's not a tangential issue. I mean, a lot of interventions in these countries tend to bypass the state, tend to work at a level where the state is not involved. 
and you know bypass the politics that are so central in this context to really make sure that um you know the the, the core issues can be tackled. Hassan was reminding us of how <laughs> critical security issues, you know, the stability of the country are to be able to have lasting investment. I've worked for a very, very long time in conflict-affected countries. And I remember, you know, one of the, the very many sort of periods that I spent in Sudan and South Sudan, in Lakes region, people were saying after the the, the signing of the comprehensive pivot, this agreement, there was a lot of investment in infrastructure and viewers with MDB funding with World Bank, you know, trust fund. And people that were talking to were saying, what is the point of having these beautiful hospitals, of having these fantastic schools if we can't go there? Because it's too dangerous, because we have no security, because there's been no investment in justice issues, in reconciliation, in supporting the state to be, you know, to have legitimacy, to be present on the ground. So, that investment in human capital, which is you know, in the discussion on IDA before, was so important that ultimately is still seen as the most important and the most effective um, part of the, the IDA window. I think it's very important to, as a reminder that that's what we need to invest in and invest more. There's always, when we talk about this, this context, a lot of emphasis on supporting the private sector. Frank knows I'm passionate about it particularly supporting local private sector, but there is also a, um, a, an argument for supporting more of that investment in the soft, if you want, power in, in, in the institutions. It, it needs to be there if we want to see the investment um, in, uh, in other spaces. One thing that I haven't heard, and I think it's important to also think about, is actually how we can see DFIs work better in these places, not, you know, just expecting them to do more uh, with their own resources, but perhaps helping the risk with ODA. And I'd like to open a conversation on that, you know, at some point, whether we can use ODA better to, you know, de-risk some of the DFI investments. So not just this private sector, but also trying to encourage the DFI to be present in, you know, in this context to do more with the money um, that we have. Um, finally, the incentives, that is a big issue as Hans-Peter said, there's been a long-standing issue. Again, you know, in South Sudan, I didn't really see the best of the MDBs deployed when the countries first opened up and actually getting anyone to uh, show up in the first year or two was almost impossible. Um, and, and the other two issues related to that are the diagnostics and the risks. The, the diagnostics is fundamental because a lot of the analysis in this context is done by humanitarians. I'm a former humanitarian on the ground, and I can tell you it's not the best analytics you can get. That's not what humanitarians are there for. That's not you know what they are best placed to do. And so actually a lot of you know the analysis of the type of investment that is required, the type of intervention, is just not up to scratch. And that's what I would really like to see us working more to really strengthen, you know, that ability um, to offer better diagnostics and better price the risk of working in these environments because there is a lot of misplaced perception of the risk of what you can do. Also, often these environments are all, in, there's just a very broad brush for an entire country where we know that fragility can be very specific to specific parts of the country. And that's why we need you know, better diagnostics and better analysis of the risk and also a shared approach to risk across all of the MDBs. But let me stop here. We will see a lot more work from ODI and 
um, IGC uh, on in these topics. We're doing a lot of work on uh, navigating fragility. Again, we come up with a better word, tell us, together with Frank and many other colleagues who are here. So I just want to thank everyone. It's worked really hard to bring this conversation today. As Stefan has said, the seniority of the people in this room shows how important we think this conversation is. Uh, and we're definitely committed to um, continuing. Now that Hans Peter is also coming to ODI, so we continue to work hard, you know, to bring this at the center of the work we do across um, the development and humanitarian sort of parts and climate parts of ODI. For those of you in the room, there are refreshments out there, so join us, uh, continue the conversation. And for those who have joined us online, thank you very much um, for uh, listening to the conversation and for your contributions to the chat. Thank you.